Okay, everybody, thank you very much for coming back and um, we'll begin. Now, I'm just going to introduce Laura Toos, who's one of our legal officers here at the association and assists our members in individual legal matters that require legal representation and has some case presentations to go through with you. So please welcome Laura. Thank you very much. So as Mark mentioned, I work here as a, as a solicitor and I work in our professional services team. And so my role on a day-to-day -day basis is to assist members of the association with any what we'd like to call hairy matters when they sort of extend beyond the scope of, of a person's employment and touch on one of the regulators um, relating to the nursing profession or midwifery. Now, I apologise to any nurses in the audience who are midwives, but today I'm just going to refer to nurses because I think most of you are solely nurses. Um, on your chairs, you should have received a piece of paper um, titled Legal Case Studies. Now, normally what we do when we come up and give talks and um, discuss legal issues, um, and legal and professional issues for nurses, is that we run through all of the legal framework, the regulatory framework, and try and link that back to what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's great, but today I want to do something a bit different, and I want to essentially put you in the shoes of someone who calls us and says, help, this has happened. Because what happens next is the reality for a lot of you who, have been, who may or may not have been involved in some of these processes. And if you can understand what happens after, that will help you in the event that you are in one of these situations, hopefully. Can you, sorry, are you doing the slides or do I need to click, should Just I click? All oh, right. Okay. Thanks. So I'm just going to go over that the the objective of today, really, of my talk, is to go through and cover what internally will happen within the hospital relating to your employment in the event of um, an incident. Um, to outline the co-regulatory model that exists in New South Wales and New South Wales alone. Um, when a notification is made and, the out and outline the process of coronial investigations and inquests. Additionally, I want to discuss the potential legal implications for nurses that are civil and criminal. And that is that it really has nothing to do with your registration, but it goes even further beyond that. Um, discussion of ethical issues, which is, it, that's not a direct thing, that is in all of the case studies there is some aspect of an ethical issue which needs to be considered. And notifications um, regarding health practitioners, and I've got from both sides there, and that means when you're put in the position where you're wondering, do I have to make a notification about another health practitioner, or am I a health practitioner and a notification has been made about me relating to my health? Okay. Now I'm going to read out each of the case studies. Um, I know you've got them in front of you, so bear with me. But I've tried to make them as short as possible. So case one, you're busy working, working a busy evening shift. Two nursing staff call in sick and management haven't been able to cover those shifts. You have to do your medication round. Due to the staff's shortages, you aren't able to find anyone to check the medications with. In the middle of the medication round, you're interrupted by the nurse call buzzer. You need to assist another staff member with a patient who's become aggressive. 
by the time you return to your medication round, you're flustered and you inadvertently give a patient twice the amount of the medication prescribed. 20 minutes later, you notice that the patient is experiencing respiratory depression and is unresponsive. A met call is made and the patient is successfully resuscitated. Your medication error is later realised following the review of a patient. Now, what, what happens next? Now, on the slide you'll see this is just a, a dot point. They may not be useful for you to keep any of these slides, but it's the first step is going to be the instant notification. Now, I know most of you, and not all of you, but most of you work within um, New South Wales Health, and you'll be familiar with the IM system of, notif of incident notification. So that's the first step. And what that does is that triggers an internal response um, whereby a potentially a root cause analysis is undertaken depending on the severity of the incident um, but also there will be an, an investigation against you personally with regard to that mistake. Now that is usually referred to as a fact-finding interview and can have disciplinary outcomes within the organisation including um, reassessment of medication competencies um, and potentially a warning on your file or termination if your manager is um, unforgiving. Outside of the hospital, what will happen is that a notification will likely be made to APRA. Now, as a bit of background, the co-regulatory model in New South Wales is that APRA, who manage your registration, also receive notifications about health practitioners. But that's the end of their involvement in New South Wales. Once a notification is received by APRA, it's forwarded to what we call the Notifications Committee. And that's a meeting of the Healthcare Complaints Commission and the Nursing and Midwifery Council. And the Nursing and Midwifery Council perform a lot of the functions that the old Nurses and Midwives Board used to um, undertake. And what they do is they get together and they read all the notifications and they go, okay, where is this going to go? And in the case of a medication error, it is more than likely referred to the Nursing and Midwifery Council for review by them. That then starts another process where that practitioner is potentially assessed, and that is by way of a performance interview um, by the council and potentially an external simulated assessment either at their place of work or at a university. Following that, there is an ongoing performance management system that is put in place by the council, which can include having conditions on your registration. Now, there's a lot of variable factors in each matter. You, you know, the insight of the practitioner is absolutely paramount. How much does the practitioner take on board what they've done, own it, and learn from their mistakes, and then go and get education to rectify those deficits? Um, that is what the council are going to be looking at. And the more insight the practitioner has and the more they've done about it, the less likely it is that the council are going to want to impose serious conditions on that person's registration. They could also refer um, the practitioner following any of these um, processes to counselling at the Nursing Midwifery Council, which is a non-disciplinary avenue for handling these sorts of notifications and it's not counselling in the ordinary sense of the word, it's counselling in a professional sense and a one-off meeting, hopefully. Now, does anyone have any questions about that? I would like, to, I'm going to have questions at the end of each case study rather than going back. No? Good. I'm going to take that as a good sign. I should also say that all of these case studies, they're not 
real actual incidents but a combination of many different types of things we get. Some of them might sound a bit unusual but I guarantee you nothing there is in them is, is something that we haven't seen before. So case number two, you receive a letter in the mail from the Healthcare Complaints Commission. The letter states that a patient has made a complaint about you and it invites you to respond to this complaint. Enclosed is a copy of a letter from the patient to the Healthcare Complaints Commission alleging that you've used excessive force and inappropriate language when attempting to de-escalate a situation. You only have a vague recollection of the patient and the incident as it was many months ago and sometimes happens years ago. Um, and after checking your voicemail, you have a message from the police. And you note that they're asking you to attend the police office to make a statement in relation to a report they've received. What happens next? When the Healthcare Complaints Commission receive a complaint, they have 60 days to assess that complaint under their legislation. And what that means is they read, they say, is this a viable complaint or is it not? Regardless, they have to assess it. And part of that involves writing to the practitioner or the hospital or whoever the complaint involves and inviting them to make a response. Now, the majority of complaints that are received by the Healthcare Complaints Commission end after the assessment phase. They're then escalated somewhere else. But in, the case, in this case, where there is a serious conduct allegation, if the nurse can't adequately provide a response or there isn't CCTV to back up um, what the nurse is saying, then it will more than likely be escalated to the investigation stage. And that is really quite serious and the Healthcare Complaints Commission at that stage have very wide powers with regard to the collection of information and evidence. They will um, invite you to provide further responses and submit any evidence which will assist um, them in, in making a decision. At the end of an investigation, they can either refer the matter to another arm of the Healthcare Complaints Commission that, um, that prosecute cases against nurses, and that is the, the, what we refer to as the Director of Proceedings, and they're the ones that prosecute the cases before what is now the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, formerly the Nursing and Midwifery Tribunal, uh, and, and the Nursing and Midwifery Professional Standards Committee. Alternatively, if there is insufficient evidence um, to prosecute a complaint, the nurse may be referred to the nursing midwifery for counselling or the matter may be closed. With regards to the police investigation, it's really important that if you ever receive um, a phone call from the police that, you're not, that you shouldn't contact the police directly first, that you go and get yourself some legal advice. Now, with the legal representation provided by the association, it doesn't extend into the criminal sphere, but it's a good first place to start because we can refer you on to other lawyers. You do need to get yourself a criminal lawyer or some advice um, if you have a, a complaint made about you to the police. The police generally investigate these matters and if there is insufficient evidence, it's difficult for them to proceed. Um, but. That's not to say that they can't or won't, depending on the individual circumstances of the case. Okay. I'm just going to move on to case three. So case three, this is the, what I'll call the, um, the case that sort of touches all avenues of, of the regulatory model, um, as well as externally. So you're working a night shift in a high dependency mental health unit. Most of the patients are on level two or level three ops, requiring 15 to 30 minute lick checks. To your knowledge, all the patients have settled for the night, fingers crossed, um, and 
However, the doors in the unit are really noisy and whenever you go to open them to check the patients, they, it disturbs the patients and you risk um, waking them up. Throughout the night, you conduct five rounds and check the patients by shining a torch through their door and checking, do they look okay, do they seem okay, yep. And at the end of your shift, you sign your name in every space in the pre-filled observation chart. And in the morning, when the rounds are done, it becomes apparent that one of the patients has taken their own life. Still in bed, but taken their own life. What happens next? There's lots of swear words with what happens next in these kinds of matters. So obviously, um, the first thing that would come to mind with any death in a, in a mental health facility is that it's going to be a coroner's matter. Oh, sorry, I need to flick that. That's externally, I should say. Internally, again, there would be an IMS put in that would, because it's a severity assessment code one, that would trigger an RCA automatically. And the RCA would then result in a fact-finding interview potentially against the, um, this nurse because they failed to adequately conduct observations. Now, um, the Coroner's Act basically says that it, if it's a reportable death, it's got to be reported. But what does that mean for you guys? Well, it means you touch nothing, you do nothing, the police are called. From there on in, the police will dictate how the, the matter is to be managed because the police investigate every reportable death on behalf of the coroner. And what that involves is collecting statements, other evidence, medical records and an autopsy to compile a brief of evidence so that the coroner can make a decision about whether or not the matter needs to proceed to a coronial inquest. Now, in this sort of matter, it's very apparent that it, it probably would um, lead to a coronial inquest because of the gaps in care and potentially missed opportunities to save this person's life. So, if you're this nurse, uh, firstly, the chances are your employer is probably going to stand you down, so you should, probably, you should be giving us a call. Um, the police will also ask you for a statement, and again, that's something that we would assist you with. Um, potentially, the empl your employer would be the first to make a notification to APRA about your conduct, and that would likely result in referral to the Nursing Midwifery Council. Now, when the Nursing Midwifery Council receive notifications about the conduct of a nurse that are gravely serious, such as this, what they need to do is consider, do we need to take interim action? So that is, not wait months and months and months for an investigation, but does the conduct of this nurse or potential conduct of this nurse place the public at immediate risk of harm? And the way that they do that is by holding what is called a Section 150 proceeding. And, and the purpose of the Section 150 proceeding is to make that decision, talk to the practitioner potentially, um, gather information from them, submissions, and then make a decision, do we need to have conditions, does this person need to have conditions on their registration? Now, Section 150 hearings happen in a wide range of matters, but where it relates to conduct and there is no health issue for the practitioner, no performance issue in terms of questions about their competence, then any action taken under Section 150 results in an automatic referral of the matter back to the Healthcare Complaints Commission for investigation. In the meantime, that nurse very likely would have conditions on their registration, and in a, in a matter such as this, it would not be unheard of for the nurse to have a condition on their registration that they not work 
until they're reviewed by the council, and that could be a very long time. So that's an, it's not a suspension in, in the legislative sense of the word suspension, but it is an effective suspension. Now, industrially, for um, employees of New South Wales Health, the holding of a Section 150 can actually give right or give cause for your employer to um, suspend your employment as well. So you need to be mindful of that. Now, depending on the outcome of the investigation, you may be referred down the disciplinary pathway or the non-disciplinary. It all depends on the nurse, it all depends on their insight, and it all depends on what they've done next. However, sometimes the disciplinary pathway is a not negotiable, well, not negotiable for the Healthcare Complaints Commission. However, steps that you've taken immediately will help you later on down the track if you are facing a tribunal hearing. Now, the Healthcare Complaints Commission investigation, although they can take some years, it normally um, occurs before the coronial inquest gets around to happening. They can take two to three years on average. And at the coronial inquest, um, you would likely be asked to give evidence at that inquest. And if you're a member of the association at the time of the incident, then we would represent you in that inquest. Now, the role of the coroner is not to find fault or to make um, anyone, you know, put, chuck anyone in jail or anything like that. It's an inquiry style hearing and the, the purpose is for the coroner to determine the manner and cause of death. So that is, how did this person die and what systems could have been in place to prevent this death or what can we do differently next time so that this doesn't happen? And this is a, a really big reason why deaths in mental health facilities are reportable deaths because more often than not there are missed opportunities, there are policies that could have been written differently that would have resulted in a different outcome, there could have been design of, of the mental health facility that would have resulted potentially in a different outcome. And the coroner's job is to, to look at all of these factors, to take all the evidence on board and, and to then make some recommendations about what the facility, what New South Wales Health, what you know, different departments, including the police or the ambulance service, whoever is involved, could do differently to have achieved a different outcome. Or a different outcome next time. Um, often, years after the coronial proceedings are completed, we get a phone call from a member that goes, remember me? Um, I gave evidence that inquest three years ago. And you sort of go, hmm, quickly. And um, what usually happens is that the families of the deceased often make civil claims against the facility. And what that means is effectively that they're suing them for money, um, alleging negligence that the facility has breached their duty of care. Now, the number one question after that is, am I going to be sued? Am I going to lose my house? What's going to happen? In New South Wales, we have legislation um, called the Employees' Liability Act, and what that says is that if you, if um, are effectively guilty of negligence um, in the ordinary course of your employment, provided that the conduct wasn't willful misconduct, then you are indemnified by your employer for whatever happens, meaning you, you personally cannot be sued, um, which is great. Um, for us in New South Wales, in different states it's a different story and if you have engaged in willful misconduct um, then yes you could personally be sued because the hospital may deny liability. 
Now, that can also result in you having to give evidence potentially or um, provide another statement to the hospital solicitors. So again, this is one of those times where you need to pick up the phone and call us to get advice about what to do next. Are there any questions from that one? No? Okay. I think I'm going to be making record time. Okay, case four. A patient presents to the drug and alcohol service you work in for treatment for methamphetamine use. You recognise the patient as a resident medical officer that you've worked with for a few weeks in a previous role. The patient advises that he's not worked in several months but reports a history of use in excess of a year. You contemplate making a mandatory notification. What do you do? Um, as we heard earlier, it's all too common that health practitioners are, um, for whatever reason, um, taking substances that maybe is not such a good idea in light of the work that they do um, and the level of responsibility that they have. However, it happens and we often get phone calls on the other end of that, which I'll get into in a bit. The first thing that you should do, if you're unsure, is, is to give us a call because we can sort of guide you in the right direction. But what I'd be doing, generally, is asking you to go and download a copy of this document. Now, this is um, APRA's guidelines for mandatory notifications. If you haven't read it, it's a good idea to read it because what it tells you is, as a health practitioner, what are your obligations? in different sorts of scenarios. So in this scenario, and it, it touches on one of, potentially touches on one of the mandatory notification, um, sort of, sorry, the subsets of the mandatory notification legislation, which is, is the person placing the public at substantial risk of harm because of an impairment? So there's a few um, components of that. So it's, are they placing the public at risk? Is that test satisfied? Is, are they placing the public at risk of substantial harm? So it goes a step further. And is that risk of substantial harm because of their impairment? And if the answer to any of those is no, then you fail on, on that test and you don't have to make a mandatory notification. But sometimes it's not clear cut. You might look at this guy and you might think, well, he hasn't worked in ages and his impairment doesn't affect his work, he's, you know, he's got insight, he's not working, he's going, he's getting better, things are looking good for him. However, he potentially, if, if the regulators have no idea about his impairment, potentially tomorrow he could wake up and go, you know what, I'm feeling great, I'm going to go to work. And there's no mechanism for protecting the public or for supporting him in that process. And so what you might need to do is go, okay, I need to have a chat with some other people about this. And really, as a team, discuss this. Does a mandatory notification need to be made? Does a voluntary notification need to be made? And who's it going to be made by? Now, we hear a lot of people going, oh, someone came in and, you know, they're a doctor and, you know, I think I should make a mandatory notification, but I told management, but I don't know whether or not management made a notification. And unfortunately, the logical thing is ask, you need to ask management. But if you have any trepidation in doing so and you're really concerned that this person may place the public at substantial risk of harm, then the onus is on you as a health practitioner to go and make that notification. We also get the next question, which is, what happens if I don't? What happens if I just sit back and let someone else deal with it? And the answer is you can actually be prosecuted by the Healthcare Complaints Commission for unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct 
if you fail to make a mandatory notification. Now, to our knowledge, it hasn't happened to any nurse yet in New South Wales since the introduction of the national law. Uh, we got close, but it, did, it didn't result in, because the determination was made that it wasn't actually a no mandatory notification, it would have been a voluntary notification. So it is open to any of you at any time to make a voluntary notification about any of these health practitioners if you feel that that test has made. Now this document has a lovely little map about decision making for each of these sorts of incidents that you can go through. And if you do come to this crossroad and you make the decision not to report, then go through the document, write your reasoning on the document and put it in your bottom drawer. And if anything ever resurfaces from it, you can pull it out and you say, well, I contemplated it, I thought about it, and I consulted this document and made the decision not to. And that will help protect you in the event that it comes back. And unfortunately, they can, they can come back usually when something happens to that practitioner and nobody knows or the practitioner has um, injured someone in the course of their employment because of their impairment and the investigation tracks back from there. Okay. So case five, we're making record time, this is the last one, may resonate with some of you. Maybe, hopefully not too many of you, but we get a lot of nurses who, you know, call us up and they say, oh, look, I have, you know, three glasses, four glasses of wine at night, you know, I work a really bloody horrible job and, you know, is that, is that too much? And that's an entirely personal issue for you. But in this, in this case study, um, I've got, you like to drink alcohol when you come home from work. Stresses at work have resulted in you increasing your alcohol use, which is far too common. Uh, one Sunday you have dinner with some friends and over a number of hours you consume four to five large glasses of wine. And most of you being drug and alcohol workers, I'm sure you'll know that people's estimate of what a, a standard drink is and what an actual drink is greatly differs. Um, and at 6am when you're on your way to work for your morning shift, um, you're pulled over by an RBT and the reading comes back at 0.06. More expletives there. Um, so what happens next and what are your obligations? Because really this is a very personal thing to happen and it's got nothing to do with your work, it's just sort of comes to you to make a decision about what you have to do. Now with regard to the um, RBT charge, again you need to go and, and consult a private solicitor about how to deal with that separately, but again a first port of call can be us because we can direct you to where you need to go um, regarding the charge. The next issue we've got is, well, how does this affect my registration? What's going to happen with that? Are APRA going to take my registration? Are they going to put conditions on me? How does it affect? So, and the other question is, you know, do I have to tell them? You know, I'd really prefer to keep this secret and out of the papers and out of the local papers if you're a regional um, nurse. Oh, I, sorry. So, the Health Practitioner Regulation National Law, which is the legislation that um, governs most of these, um, most of the, the regulators are in the Nursing Midwifery Council and um, provides the framework for your registration to exist. Under that there is an obligation under section 130 that you have to notify APRA um, of a relevant event. And a relevant event is a charge, not a conviction, a charge that is punishable by up to 12 months imprisonment or more. So when we get a phone call saying, I've got a low-rage drink driving offence, do I have to tell APRA now? 
The answer to that is no, you don't, because a low-range street driving offence isn't punishable by 12 months imprisonment or more. And, but there are some things that people would be surprised can be dangerous driving, you know, um, that causes some injury to somebody, that can be punishable by 12 months imprisonment or more. Um, high range drink driving, some drug use, drug possession. Unfortunately, we've seen it all pretty much. Um, those can result in that seven days of the charge being triggered. You then need to notify APRA again if you have received a conviction. Um, however, when it comes around to next April, May, and it's time to renew your registration, there'll be a nice little question, which is, you know, in the last 12 months, have you been charged with basically anything? And at that point in time, you'll be obliged to answer yes. My suggestion is don't wait until your registration comes around for renewal because it will hold up your registration process. Um, even if it's by a month or two, you just don't want to be in that situation where you're waiting around for a letter from APRA. The best thing to do is to jump on it straight away, to write a letter to them explaining the circumstances, essentially fall on your sword, show some insight and hopefully they can then process that quickly. However, if they become concerned at any point that this um, charge that you've received is as a result of excess alcohol use and that they may become concerned that you potentially have an impairment as defined in the national law. Um, and now, if you're not familiar with it, I'll read it for those of you who are not familiar with it. Sorry. I do have it somewhere here. Maybe I have not brought it with me, but that's right. It's, it is in the document. Um, if, Effectively, you know, it's, it's basically whether or not your impairment um, detrimentally affects your capacity to practice the profession. And that's obviously something that's very subjective. And it's not based on whether or not you think you've got an impairment. It will be based on whether or not a council-appointed psychiatrist thinks you have an impairment. Now, if they do determine that you have an impairment within the meaning of the law, they will refer you to what we call the Impaired Registrants Panel or the Health Program, which is a program um, that is run by the Nursing Midwifery Council that involves you voluntarily agreeing to have conditions placed on your registration for review and monitoring of your health condition. So it could be substance abuse, it could be alcohol use, it could be depression, it could be anxiety, it could be a whole lot worse. But those are the things that the impaired registrants panel or the health program um, monitor. People who have impairments within the meaning of the national law um, for any or all of those sorts of things. And if that charge of drink driving leads to you being assessed and leads to them determining you have an impairment, then you will be participating in that program if you want to keep your registration. I think that's it. That's... Thank you. So do we have any questions at all? Anybody with any questions? You've done a good job of explaining it all then. I'll do it. I was going to say, maybe it's Friday. What? It's probably not, probably not a bad idea. Yeah. There is one more point. I was trying to keep it brief so you guys could all get out of here early, but...
um, apparently not. So one of the, one of the common inquiries we get um, is that the hospital have solicitors and the association have solicitors and the nurses are often sort of torn between, well, my, if my employer are looking after me, why do I need the association? Or um, vice versa, who, who am I going to go with? Who, who is going to act in my best interest? Now, in the event of a civil matter or a criminal matter, um, we are asked to give evidence and the association is not in a position to represent you um, because we have no standing in those proceedings, then your only option really is to be supported by the hospital employers or the police prosecutor, whoever's bringing you there. Um, in the event of a coronial inquest, um, if you have the option between coming with us and going with the hospital solicitors, um, the, the difference is that we represent your interests and your interests alone, whereas the hospital solicitors will represent the hospital's interests first and their employees underneath that um, as, a, as a second, if you like. That can be fine. However, if there is a conflict between evidence that the hospital wants to bring and evidence that you want to bring, um, then they may leave you with that representation and that could be difficult. In the event of a tribunal matter or um, a Healthcare Complaints Commission investigation, it is very rare. Um, I think possibly once in five and a half years I've heard of the hospital or the facility um, offering a solicitor to assist um, to represent a nurse in any of those proceedings. So I hope that it's a bit of extra clarification there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Laura. Um, any, yeah, yeah. any questions at all? Anybody have any questions or is it reasonably clear? Hi, Laura. Where did you say that document is available? So the mandatory notification guidelines is available on the ARPRA website. Okay. Um, there's a lot of other really useful documents there too. The Code of Professional Conduct, the Code of Ethics, um, the Competency Standards for the Registered Nurse, the Competency Standards for the Enrolled Nurse. All of those documents, if you haven't read them recently, they have been updated and republished and I would encourage you to go and have a, have a squiz. Thank you. Um, any other questions at all? Okay. Um, well, the next one is on CPD. Thank you very much. Join me again in thanking Laura for uh, case studies. Um, thank you, Laura.